Hey, it's Tom. Welcome back to the Can of Boomers podcast. Our guest this week is Alex Halperin of Weed Week. Alex basically invented this publication so that he could cover all aspects of cannabis, uh, science, culture, business, everything about it, because it is the story of our time. So we're glad to have him on, get his expertise. Watch for us on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite player, and come by and see us at cannaboomerswithak.com. Enjoy the episode. This is Let's Talk About Weed, the Cannaboomers podcast, CBD, microdosing, and all things related to medical cannabis for baby boomers. From San Diego, here's your host, Thomas J. Hey, our guest this week is Alex Halperin of Weed Week. How are you doing, Alex? Very well, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Tell us about Weed Week, how you guys got started, what your mission is, and so on. Sure. So I was a business journalist in, in New York in, in 2014, and, and marijuana wasn't a part of my life particularly. But I had caught wind of, you know, you know the sort of early stirrings of legalization, and, and I was pretty intrigued because it, it seemed like just like a sort of mega story and sort of the obvious um, parallel would be prohibition that, you, you know, would just have a huge impact on um, American life. And um, so at the end of the year, I, I wrote one story about the industry that year and then um, for Fast Company magazine. And then they sent me to MJ BizCon in that, that November, uh, November 2014, which then is now was the sort of the biggest industry event. And, uh, and I, I got there and I thought there are 3,500 people there. And I thought this is an amazing story. I should I, I should cover this. And there were just so many dimensions to it. Um, and I, I've often said since the, um, you, you know, it's a it's a political story. It's a business story. It's a health and science. Um, it's a story about social justice and, and who gets to get rich in America. Um, and of course, a, you know, a, a cultural story in that there's a, a rich vein of, of, of cannabis culture that um, doesn't necessarily get the respect it, it deserves. And, and so just from a, from a journalistic perspective, it, it struck me as, as so interesting. And I thought I should cover this. So I, I moved to Denver a couple months after that, which was then sort of the center of the legalization world and started writing about it for different publications, Fast Company, The Washington Post, um, the LA Times, different places like that. And not long after that, I started writing a newsletter, Weed Week. Um, and we now have um, a, a very influential audience of about 11,000 folks and includes many, many leading figures in the industry. And we're, we, we hope you, it's free. And we hope uh, if they're interested that your, your audience will consider subscribing. Um, we also... I mean, we also pub we also have a podcast, the Weed Week podcast, um, and then newsletters focused on California and Canada. And we just hired um, our first um, full time reporter, and she's publishing original reporting and analysis every day. So we've got lots to offer, and most of it is free. It is the story of our lifetimes, really. Um... I just signed up for your newsletter a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I'm impressed with the breadth and depth of it. It's not just business or science or culture. It's kind of all those things. It's very deep. Yeah. I, I've sometimes said, and it, it sounds a little glib, that the least interesting thing about marijuana is what happens after you smoke it. Um, but but, but, but I, think, I think maybe in some ways that's also a little bit disrespectful because the truth is, is that 
while while marijuana um, wasn't a part of my life when I when I started writing about it, it's become a part of my life. And I I won't say it's for everyone, and I, and I won't say necessarily. I'm not even sure that it has been sort of universally positive for me, but it has definitely been positive in in some important ways. I mean, professionally, this has been a real flourishing for me. And um, it's happened simultaneously with me using marijuana. And, you, you know, I'm not I'm not going to attribute all of that to my use, but but I'll attribute some of it. Sure. How often do you use? I'd say a, a couple of times a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it depends. Do you are you an indica or a sativa guy? I don't really have a preference. I, I've I've argued repeatedly that they don't really mean those distinctions don't really mean much. So that that's not necessarily how I, how I think about it, um, but y- y- you know I I smoke and I I use I use edibles. I used to to vape more, although the 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 vaping crisis put me off vaping a little bit. Right, I've been dry vaping, which is different. Yeah, yeah, I've done some of that too. Yeah, you can kind of control the temperature and all that stuff. You've also got a, a book out recently, the Cannabis Dictionary. Yeah, um, I hope folks will get the chance to check that out. But but essentially, that was a chance to sort of take my approach to the cannabis news and sort of take a wider view of this plant's sort of thousands of years of, of history and how how it is um, deeply entwined with, with human history. So we go back to ancient China, where it was first used as a medicine, and, um, and then sort of imperial England, where hemp... Um, comprised the sails and the ropes of the British Navy, which which conquered the world, but also some of the, uh, you, you know, the major cultural figures who have been associated with the, the plant at, at various times. So like a really f- wide ranging look at cannabis that also tries to, as, as I try to do in, in, in my publication, um, there, there's a lot of misinformation about the plant and, and trying to sort of cut through some of that. So, so one example would be with the, the founding fathers. Um, it, 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 it seems like, you know, it's often been said that, yeah, you know, they, they smoked weed or the constitution is, is made on, made out of hemp. And I, I sort of determine that, um, the founding fathers probably didn't smoke weed, but, um, but they certainly grew hemp and, while the the constitution is is on parchment um drafts of it and the the declaration of independence and and other important documents of the time were were almost certainly written on him well you mentioned misinformation and and that sure is the case i mean the prohibition began in what 1937 or so but even before that there was uh, a curtailment of people's cannabis rights. And we were all told ridiculous stories until the late 80s when the science began to catch up with it. So part of um, what you're doing, it seems to me, is is rewriting that narrative and maybe helping defeat the stigma that is really still out there. Yeah, you know, um, I think I, I'm a proponent of, of fact-based information. And that's what what I um, what what I care about um, in the world more broadly, and and very much in in the cannabis world as well, and the the amount to which it defeats the stigma, I think I think it has some role in that. Um, 
I'm, I'm not sure if it has a sort of an overwhelming role in that. Um, but I mean, I, do you want to talk a little bit about the stigma? Because I think stigma is just a fascinating thing. Yeah, let's dive into that. I mean, one thing that struck me was, like, like I said, when, when I sort of first started on, on this path, I, I was living in New York and not really hanging out. And cannabis certainly then was a much less prevalent part of uh, daily life for me and, and sort of the my milieu than it is in, in Los Angeles in 2020. I, I moved to LA after the 2016 election. Um, but when I started on, when I started on this, this career path, sort of people I knew like in the journalism world sort of came out of the green closet to me, which was, which was really interesting. And um, I think the stigma is, 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 a, is a very real thing. And I, I think a lot of people in the industry still feel it. I, I think I still feel it in certain respects. I think one of the reasons, however, that um, Weed Week has sort of carved out some sort of a niche as a publication is that a lot of the mainstream media doesn't take this seriously. Um, marijuana cannabis has arguably been the fastest growing industry in the country for the last five years or something. And the Wall Street Journal doesn't have a beat reporter covering it. I mean, that's sort of inconceivable with any other industry. Um, the New York Times doesn't have anyone on the marijuana beat. Um, you know, it's it's very difficult times for the for the media world right now, as, as it is for a lot of industries, which sort of dictates how, how they spend. And but this predated COVID for many years. But um, but even so, uh, there's still a lot of media organizations that don't take this seriously. My hometown paper, the L.A. Times, which is in better shape than a lot of newspapers, doesn't cover this so in, in, in any depth at all. And there are there are some exceptions. The Boston Globe right now probably does the best job of any big paper covering the industry, of course, focused on on Massachusetts. The Denver Post tried for a while with the cannabis, um, which was a noble effort, but it but it had to be shut down for for business reasons. And but um, but I think that the stigma has sort of created room for 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 a media outlet like Weed Week. Why is there this reluctance? Sure. I mean, the normal economics of covering a beat would apply. There would be advertising revenues to be had. It wasn't that long ago that we had an attorney general who thought that only bad people smoked marijuana. As wrongheaded as that is, it, it was still the case. And is there just a long hangover from all that misinformation? And, you know, let, let's be honest. I mean, we probably had attorney generals for a long time, not all of them, but, but certainly a lot of them who thought only bad people smoked marijuana. Um, and, you, you know, I, I don't think that's necessarily our, our current attorney general's view, but he doesn't have that different of you. <laughs> or he, he, he doesn't seem to. So, yeah, I mean, this is a very so. But, you, you know, you look at, like a senior editor at The Wall Street Journal once just told me flat out, like, we're not interested in this. And that's because this is a topic that people who work at places like The Wall Street Journal don't necessarily take seriously. That's because they they see it as goofy or, or silly. Um, it, 
so they, they just think it's something that they can ignore and, and they largely have ignored it, which, which is, you know, I think very sad from a, from a media perspective, because it's such an interesting story. And at the same time, you, you know, there's a lot of funny business going on and it could use some investigate, some, some more aggressive reporting to, to shed some light on it. There's the business aspect. There's, there's the science aspect. There's the cultural aspect. Their readership wants to know these things. I mean, if people are buying stocks, they would like to have some coverage from a business perspective about which cannabis stocks are going to perform. Sure. To be fair, I mean, there are some some organizations doing doing good work. Um, Jeremy Burke is a good Wall Street cannabis reporter at Business Insider, although he's recently been sort of pulled off the beat a little uh, for 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 the to cover for pandemic coverage. Um, and yeah, you know, there are definitely are some some good resources out there for credible information on on cannabis investing, but um, but still. Like many other stories these days, it's I think the sort of mega legalization story has been undercovered in the mainstream media. Well, and you mentioned the pandemic, and of course that is kind of overshadowing everything at the moment and and will be for a while. But do you see the whole essential status and how all of a sudden, unthinkable two years ago, dispensaries are seen as essential? Yeah. And then- I guess the second part of that question slash comment is that the states are going to need some tax revenues after all putting all that money out. Do you think that helps the legalization accelerate a little bit? That's what a lot of people are saying. You know, there there is some logic to it that that states will need a shot in the arm from from jobs or, or tax revenue. I'm I'm not necessarily convinced that cannabis is going to deliver on the tax revenue or the jobs quite as well as some people hope. But certainly the essential status has been a real vote of legitimacy for, for an industry that for, for understandable reasons is always happy to receive um, sort of an, a stamp of legitimacy. And as you, you know, I think we had a really good column this week by our business columnist, Dan Mitchell, you can check it out on the site. Where, where he's sort of going into the depths or sort of the, the nuance of what, what it means to be essential. Um, because like liquor is essential, but spa treatments. And so, so just to give a few examples, like pharmacies are essential and, and liquor is essential and spa treatments are not. Cannabis is arguably each of those things. So... So while there is this sort of stamp of legitimacy, it's not necessarily clear how that translates into policy. Although, of course, the the potential for economic benefit certainly helps. It probably could help as well once states are ready to sort of deal with other issues, which right now they're not. Right. As legalization has rolled out, I guess it's the patchwork is the word. There's no real standard. And you can point to what California has done, maybe not as well as as we could have out here, where there's a a market that is still an illegitimate market that is hurting the people who who pay taxes. And and then when you go into a dispensary, I mean, it's 35 to 45 percent tax now, I think. So as the new states come online, do you think they will learn from some of the mistakes that have been made thus far? You know, um, 
there are there are different models. I mean, I think one of the before before the pandemic, I kept talking and I was hoping to make a trip to Oklahoma. So so you know, there's a literally a song like a famous cultural war anthem. Um, Okie from Muskogee that begins, we don't smoke marijuana in Muskogee. But um, it turns out that Oklahoma has made it as easy and as, you know, straightforward a process to open a dispensary, a a medical dispensary. So presumably it's pretty easy to get your your medical card as well. Um, But but so there's a quote, they've made it as easy as opening a taco stand. And they're, you know, Oklahoma's a low tax, low regulation state. And now there are something like 2000 dispensaries in Oklahoma, which makes which amounts to the second highest per capita of any state. Um, Oregon is number one. But, uh, you know, you, you so Oklahoma has three times as many dispensaries as California. That is just totally crazy. But it's true. And and so there are different models that are emerging and certainly we're going, you, you know, as there's now, you know, Missouri, which borders Oklahoma and Arkansas, which I, I think it borders Oklahoma too. They, um, as they think about how they're going to legalize and open up, there's nobody really arguing that it's not going to happen. You, you know, certainly they're going to be looking to places more like them. So, so, so Oklahoma, and um, we're. Go- I think that's largely how the industry is going to evolve. Obviously, they probably have a good tax revenue from all those sales, and you know, there's a lot of things you could look at to study and say, you know, they did this right or or, or not. Yeah. No. Absolutely. I, I like I said. I really want to go <laughs> as as soon as as soon as that seems like a reasonable possibility. Let's talk about again the pandemic. There's been a lot of claims made. Kyle Shirley got slapped, got his hand slapped for claiming that CBD could cure or prevent COVID nineteen. On the other hand, we know that you know CBD can help keep your endocannabinoid system balanced and fine tuned. Is is there some middle ground that makes sense, um, or should should we just keep these two things separate? <laughs> okay, so you know Kyle Turley and and some other companies who have been called out by the by the FDA, and I think one has even been sued, were making unproven and what seemed to be totally bogus claims about CBD's potential to um, either prevent or or cure uh, COVID-19. And that's that's illegal. And and they've been um, reprimanded for it. And, you know, I think I think that that kind of misinformation needs to be or I, I I don't have a problem with combating that kind of misinformation. Um, on on the other end of the spectrum, they're beginning to be um, some some scientific research, but this is preclinical, so probably in animals that CBD and perhaps other cannabinoids um, in conjunction with other drugs may relieve um certain symptoms and i believe the symptom was lung inflammation which sounds like a pretty serious symptom in some folks with a very 
severe and advanced cases. And of course, that needs to be explored. And it's because medical marijuana is is so hard to, to study in this country. We've got a good story on that today. Uh, Hillary, our new reporter, Hillary, has a great news story on that today on the site. So check that out. Um, it is so is so difficult to, to study that this middle ground is allowed to live where people sort of rely on anecdotal evidence and stuff like that, which, you know, it's impossible to prevent when you can't do legitimate research and find out what what these chemicals actually do and don't do. What what the sort of other middle ground, I think, is that it seems pretty clear from from sales in in most places that people are finding solace and joy and other kinds of comfort in cannabis during this very difficult time. But that is largely unrelated to the disease itself. Right. You wouldn't take it with any expectation that it's going to protect you. Yeah, it might help with some of the stresses of living in quarantine. It certainly does. <laughs> I don't know anyone who would if 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 you're a cannabis user, chances are you're using it in quarantine. You've got your finger on the pulse of this, but do you read Biden's current stance as a positive or a negative his stance on cannabis? So, you know, anyone who knows me or or follows me on Twitter knows that I'm a Democrat uh, and will be supporting Joe Biden or, or if he's replaced whoever his replacement is. And he was, you know, he was one of very few of the Democratic candidates who um, doesn't favor legalization. He wasn't who I voted for. I voted for Elizabeth Warren. Uh, largely for for other reasons, but she has been um, a, a legalization supporter, one of the most meaningful legalization supporters in Washington, I, I, I would think. You, you know, as for, for Biden's view, I don't think, I, I, I've said, you, you, you know, he's not going to take away people's weed, <laughs> which, is, which is good because um, that's not the way to get votes. <laughs> You don't you don't get votes by taking away the people's weed. But, you, you, you know, I think another some of the other candidates might have been able to brandish that as as an issue in the campaign. On the other side, there 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 are some folks who have sort of said, oh, well, Trump is going to to legalize in order to sort of win the election. I really don't see that as happening. I, I don't see this as something he is interested in or understands. And, you, you know, he says he's never had a drink in his life. He He's not, this isn't something that resonates with him. And I don't, I really don't think it's on his radar at all. It's even, there are even recordings of it being brought up with him a little bit. And he really doesn't seem interested in this topic, even though it could potentially, theoretically, it could help him a lot. So right now, as I see the race, I, I would say legalization is largely a wash. I, I don't think it's it's not going to be what's deciding people's vote. 
I mean, you, you know, I, I think if you are a legalization supporter, Trump has certainly been no friend to the movement. He has left it alone. But that it, it, in terms of his support for the movement, it's really the least he could do. Right. If someone convinced him that it was in his best interest to do it, he, he might you know, do it overnight then. But, um, yeah, he'd have to be open to that. Also, I mean, I think I think it's also worth noting that um, a lot of the Fox News personalities who he pays attention to um, and who are very influential, like like Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram, are very anti-weed. So even though a majority of Republicans favor legalization, there remains a very there, there remains a very strongly anti-legalization contingent within the Republican Party, and especially sort of in the senior ranks of Washington. I guess that kind of leads to the next um, question. In lieu of an executive order, you would probably need a democratically controlled Congress to get it through the legislative branch. You, you know, um, I think I think even a Republican-controlled Congress is going to come around eventually, but uh, – Certainly, um, a Democratic Senate would would probably could be expected to move more quickly on this than um, a Republican Senate would. And one could expect, in, in my view, that Biden or Trump would probably sign any sort of marijuana reform bill sent to them, whether that was banking or or full legalization, it, because not doing so would be politically toxic. Let me ask if you have a feel for what the economic impact would be. I mean, is it a comparable industry? Could you look at the liquor industry and say, you know, this is what the cannabis industry could be in terms of tax revenue and sales and jobs and all those things? Yeah. You know, it's it's a it's a hard question. So the the as I understand it, the the U.S. liquor industry is worth about two hundred billion dollars a year. So right now, and that sort of plateaued a while ago, and may even be sinking a little bit. Um, cannabis is still much, much, much smaller than that. I mean, there are only you, you know a dozen or so states with actual functioning markets, but um, but I think sales were about twelve billion in in twenty nineteen. So, you know, <clears throat> I <clears throat> so there's a huge amount of room room to grow. And certainly uh with with tax revenue, it, it's hard to compare because you, you know, right now liquor buyers don't really have an have an alternative illegal market to to shop on. So part part of the tax question involves, I guess eliminating the illegal market. And maybe one way to do that is to lower taxes. And then maybe you can sort of raise taxes again once you're, you're sort of collecting from a large amount of the population. In terms of jobs, I, I think there's sort of a trap door here because with, with legalization, um, you, you know, right now, if a brand wants to have wants to sell its product in more than one state. It has two options. It Say it's based in Colorado and it wants to move to California. It can either license its intellectual property and recipes and trademarks and brands and stuff like that to a company that's already operating in California, or 
it can make its own factory and 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 hire people and sort of import its own um, resources. So that creates jobs. But as soon as you know, with reform and legalization, companies aren't going to have the need for for two factories anymore because they'll be able to drive their their products from Colorado to to California. So then, where do the jobs at the factory they created in California go? They they disappear. And then, of course, there's the possibility, and and maybe this seems a little far off, but you, it, it's beginning to happen in in dribs and drabs, is that production can be can be sent overseas. And, you know, right now there are very expensively powered warehouses in the in the desert, in the California desert, growing cannabis, but it, it would be a lot cheaper to grow them in greenhouses in Colombia, where they're they're powered by the sun. And that's going to be a you got to figure that's going to be a factor pretty soon. I guess the consumer will decide whether they want sun-grown, probably cheaper Colombian because it's there's not air conditioning involved and robotic yeah. things. <laughs> it's 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 grown by people who aren't paid a lot, and maybe it doesn't cost as much. Right, exactly. I mean, you, you, you know, I mean, one could argue that the pandemic is going to scramble global supply chains, but but we'll see. People are still going to want to. Companies are still going to want to pay their workers less. I don't think the pandemic's going to change that. Right. There's often the comparison to the gold rush. You know, this is a green rush. What are the ancillary? Who, who's who's got the picks and shovels um, concession? Well, you, you know, there there are so many. Um, for for a while, you, you know, I, I suspected that the the events business was was really popping, but now, of course, that that's very hard. And I, I have a feeling it's a lot harder to make money from from virtual events than in person events. Anyone who's ever paid to set up a booth at a trade show knows that it just costs a fortune. Um, so it's hard to tell who's making money. I I don't know. <laughs> I I, I want. I wish I knew. I wish I knew more. <laughs> frankly, but there are clearly. I I think some of the software that are sort of making life easier and cheaper for companies are are, are doing pretty well. Compliance is always going to be a concern, right? And of course, the lawyers. This is a big, crazy beat. And like you said, it's the story of our time. What part of it excites you the most as you look into the future? You know, I've just always been totally fascinated by how an industry goes from illegal to legal and, and what that entails and how sort of all the dynamics shift. So like the, the easiest the easiest example of that is, or, or, or I think my favorite example to explain is on the illegal market, weed sells itself. All a business does, needs to do is get, is I guess produce weed and get it to where, get it to the consumer, which is basically anywhere. And, and how that shifts in a legal market where once everybody's got, is able to sell really good weed that, that totally shifts the dynamics and the skills that, that become valuable change as well from to, to branding and, and presentation and all sorts of stuff like that. And, and, you know, we've seen that even as we've seen this evolve and sort of attitudes change over the, over the last five years, we still haven't seen that much tangible 
difference in in how how these businesses are operating. They are still operating in a in a wildly unconventional way. They don't have access to to banks. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see what what banking reform does. And we're that's probably that's the thing that has the most momentum in Washington. It's the thing that sort of I think both parties can come closest to agreeing on, but it's going to upend the industry in all sorts of crazy ways. So I, I'm pretty interested to see what happens when that happens. Well, you said a lot of interesting things there. I mean, I think obviously from the old school guys growing it in the basement or in the back 40 and yeah, you it sold itself. And you're right. I think as you develop brands, there's going to be, okay, this is not a commodity. Ours is special because we have minor cannabinoids or we have more of this terpene. There's going to be all kinds of branding and differentiation that happens to this thing that I don't know if it's a commodity or not. Maybe there are a lot of differences in it. But in the end, you follow the money, right? Yeah. I mean, every day I hear from from PR people who want me to talk to this brand or that brand. But I mean... I don't find it that interesting because it's all it's all the same stuff. I mean, I guess I'm more interested in sort of the process of how a company goes about thinking, okay, we're going to start selling flour. Here's how we're going to distinguish ourselves from the thousand other companies selling, selling flour. Even if you know about the plant, there can be higher levels of THC in one bud than another bud right next to it or the bottom of that bud. So how do you standardize that experience for the consumer when there's so much variability on the same plant? Or is it just a roll of the dice? Does the consumer get what they get? You know, I had an organic chemist on a few weeks ago, and, and she talked about the different cannabinoids. And she, she was like, well, what is a cannabinoid? We're not even sure because we're there's new ones being discovered all the time, almost every day. <laughs> so from a chemistry standpoint, she's interested in pulling out different molecules and combining them. Send me that episode. I'd like to hear that. Yeah, I'll send, her name is uh, Andrea Holmes, but I'll send it to you. From her standpoint, it's almost like a designer drug. I mean, you can you can manipulate these molecules and come up with something that uh, is different. My, my personal read is we're pretty long way from a company being able to credibly claim it can do that. Might be out there in the future, yeah. But maybe I'm wrong. You also touched on on banking reform, and and again, that's the great level. Or you know if if you can embrace the industry with the banking system, everything changes. Um, yeah, so that's going to be exciting. We'll, we'll see if we live to see it happen. I mean, we, we were thinking, you know, I don't think too many people in 2015 really thought, I, I don't remember actually what, what people thought about banking, when banking reform would happen in 2015. It's just kind of Byzantine now. I mean, if I go to the dispensary, I have to have cash. I can't use my credit card. I mean, once it's embraced by the banks end to end, then there's more lending, right? Businesses have a credit line. There's more investment. It's easier for the consumer. What else would change? Well, big money would get involved. Uh, you know, mainstream venture capital, mainstream Wall Street, um, both of whom are sort of dabbling and sort of dipping their toe in along the ages, they would jump in fast. That That's a big thing. Right now, Aurora is being hammered, right? Yeah. all the Most of the Canadian companies are really struggling. Do you have a theory for that? Well, 
So, Jesse, uh, I'm going to make a plug for our Weed Week Canada newsletter. Um, Jesse Staniforth really does, I think, a peerless job of keeping up with the Canadian market, which is, you know, it's a fully legal market and a very different market than than any in America. But even though it's fully legal, it's really struggling. The the regulation has made it exceptionally difficult for for companies to function. But they also they also made some bad calls. So I think Aurora, you know, they opened these huge facilities for growing, you know, a million square feet or five hundred thousand square feet, and the demand wasn't there, especially since a lot of consumers are still shopping on the, the illegal market. There, and you know what we talked about earlier with imports from Colombia, that's going to be a factor in Canada a lot sooner, it is my impression, because that that transaction can be done fully illegally. But there's also sort of a, a widespread perception in Canada that the licensed companies, they all tend to be sort of big corporate entities, but they have a reputation for not producing very good product. And that's not really a problem that companies in America have. Um, but that's one of the reasons folks in Canada have, a lot of them have stuck to the illegal market. And they had something funny with edibles too, right? Did For the first year or two, did they even have access to edibles? Right. So, so Canada legalized, flour went on sale in October, 2018, and then edibles and vapes as well were called legalization 2.0. And that became legal in December. And so one of the rules they have is that you can't have more than 10 milligrams of THC per package. So a pack of gummies in California is um, 100 milligrams, either divided into 10 or 5 or smaller per piece. And that, that costs about 16 or 17 bucks. But in Canada, if you're limited to 10 milligrams per package, that means edibles are going to be much, much more expensive. And I, I think there's, a, in general, in Canada, there are a lot of rules that, I mean, I suppose are purportedly in the interest of public safety that don't seem to be doing all that much for public safety, but, but also seem to be pr pretty hostile to the idea of a functional industry. Yeah, that just seems ridiculous to have to buy 10 packages. I mean, the packaging industry must love it, but what an inconvenience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and no doubt that also pushes up prices as well. That purportedly is a safety measure to keep it out of the hands of children or? I don't know the exact reason, but, you, you, you know, it's being done out of a, a wariness of, of the drug. You know, you can't, you don't buy liquor in a, you don't go into a liquor store and buy it by the shot. You know, it, it just doesn't really make sense. Maybe the liquor world would could make that work. But right now, the cannabis world isn't really in a position to make that work. Just like you said at the beginning, I mean, there's lots to cover. There's there's a lot of aspects to this, and there's certainly mistakes being made along the way. There are people doing it right. But like everything about cannabis, there's there's lots to learn. Indeed. Alex, is there anything um, we haven't covered that we should? No, you, you, you know, I I just say um, I hope I hope your listeners will will check out our 
um, our resources at, at weedweek.net. So we've got three free newsletters, Weed Week, which I write, Weed Week California, written by Donnie Alexander, and Weed Week Canada, written by Jesse Staniforth. Um, we have the Weed Week podcast, co-hosted by myself and Donnie. Um, and a new re- we have a business columnist who publishes a story a week, and then a new reporter, uh, Hillary Corrigan, who is um, publishing news stories daily. So lots of news. And we're also just publishing um, the Weed Week Guide to the California Cannabis Industry, which I wrote, which is about a 65-page guide. And this is more for people who are professionally involved in the industry, but you don't have to be professionally involved to just check it out because it's free. Um, I talked to about 14 um entrepreneurs and executives and and regulators and lawyers and and lawmakers about um, the issues they're facing in in the industry and and how they are navigating them. And it also includes market research data from an exclusive um, survey we commissioned, um, which asks folks, uh, we asked 400 Californians about how, what, where, and why they buy buy and use cannabis. So if you're professionally involved, that may be of interest to you. And uh, so anyway, this is the Weed Week Guide to the California Cannabis Industry. And by the time this podcast airs, it should be up and available for free at weedweek.net. What a great resource. I will definitely be downloading that and digging in. Uh, We'll get all that in the show notes. uh, And you're on Twitter, too, and Facebook and all that stuff? Yep. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook and LinkedIn at Weed Week News. Excellent. Thanks for taking the time to share what you're up to and uh, share your expertise with our audience. I know uh, people are going to love hearing this episode. Thanks so much. It was a lot of fun. You've been listening to Let's Talk About Weed, the Cannaboomers podcast with Thomas J. For more on medicinal cannabis for baby boomers, visit us at cannaboomers.com.